Section 36 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the First. Chapter 2. Lord David Dirimois. 1. Lord Linnaeus Clancharlie had not always been old and prescribed. He had had his phase of youth and passion. We know from Harrison and Pride that Cromwell, when young, loved women and pleasure, a taste which at times, another reading of the text, woman, betrays a seditious man, distrust the loosely clasped girdle. Male pro ecinctum juvenem cavite. Lord Clancharlie, like Cromwell, had had his wild hours and his irregularities. He was known to have had a natural child, a son. This son was born in England in the last days of the Republic, just as his father was going into exile. Hence he had never seen his father. This bastard of Lord Clancharlie had grown up as page at the court of Charles II. He was styled Lord David Dirimois. He was a lord by courtesy, his mother being a woman of quality. The mother, while Lord Clancharlie was being coming an owl in Switzerland, made up her mind, being a beauty, to give over sulking, and was forgiven that goth, her first lover, by one undeniably polished and at the same time a royalist, for it was the king himself. She had been but a short time the mistress of Charles II, sufficiently long, however, to have made his majesty, who was delighted to have won so pretty a woman from the Republic, bestow on the little Lord David, the son of his conquest, the office of keeper of the stick, which made that bastard officer, boarded at the king's expense, by a natural revulsion of feeling, an ardent adherent of the Stuarts. Lord David was for some time one of the hundred and seventy wearing the great sword, while afterwards, entering the corps of pensioners, he became one of the forty who bear the gilded halberd. He had, besides being one of the noble company instituted by Henry the Eighth as a bodyguard, the privilege of laying the dishes on the king's table. Thus it was that whilst his father was growing grey in exile, Lord David prospered under Charles II, after which he prospered under James II. The king is dead, long live the king. It is the non deficit alter orios. It was on the accession of the Duke of York that he obtained permission to call himself Lord David de Rimois, from an estate which his mother, who had just died, had left him in that great forest of Scotland, where is found the crag, a bird which scoops out a nest with its beak in the trunk of the oak. 2. James II was a king and affected to be a general. He loved to surround himself with young officers. He showed himself frequently in public on horseback, in a helmet and cuirass, with a huge projecting wig hanging below the helmet and over the cuirass, a sort of equestrian statue of imbecile war. He took a fancy to the graceful mien of the young Lord David. He liked the royalist for being the son of a republican. The repudiation of a father does not damage the foundation of a court fortune. The king made Lord David gentleman of the bedchamber at a salary of a thousand a year. It was a fine promotion. A gentleman of the bedchamber sleeps near the king every night on a bed which is made up for him. There are twelve gentlemen who relieve each other. 
Lord David, whilst he held that post, was also head of the king's granary, giving out corn for the horses and receiving a salary of two hundred and sixty pound. Under him were the five coachmen of the king, the five postilions of the king, the five grooms of the king, the twelve footmen of the king, and the four chair-bearers of the king. He had the management of the race-chaucers, which the king kept at Newmarket, and which cost his majesty six hundred pound a year. He worked his will on the king's wardrobe, from which the knights of the garter are furnished with their robes of ceremony. He was saluted to the ground by the usher of the black rod, who belongs to the king. That usher, under James II, was the knight of Dupas. Mr. Baker, who was clerk of the crown, and Mr. Brown, who was clerk of the parliament, kowtowed to Lord David. The court of England, which is magnificent, is a model of hospitality. Lord David presided, as one of the twelve, at banquets and receptions. He had the glory of standing behind the king on offertory days, when the king gave to the church the golden Byzantium, on collar days, when the king wears the collar of his order, on communion days, when no one takes the sacrament excepting the king and the princes. It was he who on Holy Thursday introduced into his majesty's presence the twelve poor men, to whom the king gives as many silver pence as the years of his age, and as many shillings as the years of his reign. The duty devolved on him, when the king was ill, to call to the assistance of his majesty the two grooms of the almonry, who are priests, and to prevent the approach of doctors without permission from the council of state. Besides, he was lieutenant-colonel of the Scotch regiment of guards, the one which plays the Scottish march. As such, he made several campaigns, and with glory, for he was a gallant soldier. He was a brave lord, well-made, handsome, generous, and majestic in look and in manner. His person was like his quality. He was tall in stature, as well as high in birth. At one time he stood a chance of being made groom of the stole, which would have given him the privilege of putting the king's shirt on his majesty. But to hold that office it is necessary to be either prince or peer. Now, to create a peer is a serious thing. It is to create a peerage, and that makes many people jealous. It is a favour, a favour which gives the king one friend and a hundred enemies, without taking into account that the one friend becomes ungrateful. James II, from policy, was indisposed to create peerages, but he transferred them freely. The transfer of a peerage produces no sensation. It is simply the continuation of a name. The order is little affected by it. The goodwill of royalty had no objection to raise Lord David Dirimois to the upper house so long as it could do so by means of a substituted peerage. Nothing would have pleased His Majesty better than to transform Lord David Dirimois, lord by courtesy, into a lord by right. 3. The opportunity occurred. One day it was announced that several things had happened to the old exile, Lord Clancharlie, the most important of which was that he was dead. Death does just this much good to folks. It causes a little talk about them. People related what they knew, or what they thought they knew, of the last years of Lord Linnaeus. What they said was probably legend and conjecture. If these random tales were to be credited, Lord Clancharlie must have had his republicanism intensified towards the end of his life, to the extent of marrying, strange obstinacy of the exile, Anne Bradshaw, the daughter of a regicide. They were precise about the name. She had also died, it was said, but in giving birth to a boy. 
If these details should prove to be correct, his child would, of course, be the legitimate and rightful heir of Lord Glencharlie. These reports, however, were extremely vague in form and were rumours rather than facts. Circumstances which happened in Switzerland in those days were as remote from the England of that period as those which take place in China from the England of today. Lord Clancharlie must have been fifty-nine at the time of his marriage, they said, and sixty at the birth of his son, and must have died shortly after, leaving his infant orphaned both of father and mother. This was possible, perhaps, but improbable. They added that the child was beautiful as the day, just as we read in all the fairy tales. King James put an end to these rumours, evidently without foundation, by declaring, one fine morning, Lord David Dirimois sole and positive heir, in default of legitimate issue, and by his royal pleasure, of Lord Linnaeus Clancharlie, his natural father, the absence of all other issue and descent being established, patents of which grant were registered in the House of Lords. By these patents the King instituted Lord David Dirimois in the titles, rights, and prerogatives of the late Lord Linnaeus Clancharlie, on the sole condition that Lord David should wed, when she attained a marriageable age, a girl who was at that time a mere infant a few months old, and whom the King had in her cradle created a duchess. No one knew exactly why. Or, rather, every one knew why. This little infant was called the Duchess Hosiana. The English fashion then ran on Spanish names. One of Charles II's bastards was called Carlos, Earl of Plymouth. It is likely that Hosiana was a contraction for Josefa Iana. Hosiana, however, may have been a name, the feminine of Hoseas. One of Henry VIII's gentlemen was called Hoseas du Passage. It was to this little duchess that the king granted the peerage of Clan Charlie. She was a peeress till there should be a peer. The peer should be her husband. The peerage was founded on a double castle ward, the barony of Clancharlie and the barony of Hunkerville. Besides, the barons of Clancharlie were, in recompense of an ancient feat of arms, and by royal license, marquises of Colleone in Sicily. Peers of England cannot bear foreign titles. There are, nevertheless, exceptions. Thus, Henry Arundel, Baron Arundel of Warder, was, as well as Lord Clifford, a count of the Holy Roman Empire, of which Lord Cowper is a prince. The Duke of Hamilton is Duke of Chartellereau in France. Basil Fielding, Earl of Denbigh, is Count of Habsburg, of Laffenburg, and of Rheinfeld in Germany. The Duke of Marlborough was Prince of Mindelheim in Swabia, just as the Duke of Wellington was Prince of Waterloo in Belgium. The same Lord Wellington was a Spanish Duke of Cidad Rodrigo, and Portuguese Count of Vimiera. There were in England, and there are still, lands both noble and common. The lands of the lords of Clancharlie were all noble. These lands, burghs, bailiwicks, fiefs, rents, freeholds, and domains, adherent to the peerage of Clancharlie Hunkerville, belonged provisionally to Lady Hosiana, and the king declared that once married to Hosiana, Lord David Dirimois should be Baron Clancharlie. Besides the Clancharry inheritance, Lady Hosiana had her own fortune. She possessed great wealth, much of which was derived from the gifts of Madame Saint-Q to the Duke of York. Madame Saint-Q is short for Madame. Henrietta of England, Duchess of Orleans, the lady of highest rank in France after the Queen, was thus called. 4. 
having prospered under Charles and James, Lord David prospered under William. His Jacobite feeling did not reach to the extent of following James into exile. While he continued to love his legitimate king, he had the good sense to serve the usurper. He was, moreover, although sometimes disposed to rebel against discipline, an excellent officer. He passed from the land to the sea forces and distinguished himself in the White Squadron. He rose in it to be what was then called captain of a light frigate. Altogether he made a very fine fellow, carrying to a great extent the elegancies of vice, a bit of a poet, like every one else, a good servant of the state, a good servant to the prince, assiduous at feasts, at galas, at ladies' receptions, at ceremonies, and in battle, servile in a gentlemanlike way, very haughty, with eyesight dull or keen according to the object examined, inclined to integrity, obsequious or arrogant as occasion required, frank and sincere on first acquaintance with the power of assuming the mask afterwards, very observant of the smiles and frowns of the royal humour, careless before a sword's point, always ready to risk his life on a sign from his majesty with heroism and complacency, capable of any insult but of no impoliteness, a man of courtesy and etiquette, proud of kneeling at great regal ceremonies, of a gay valour, a courtier on the surface, a paladin below, quite young at forty-five. Lord David sang French songs, an elegant gaiety which had delighted Charles the Second. He loved eloquence and fine language. He greatly admired those celebrated discourses, which are called the funeral orations of Bosway. From his mother he had inherited almost enough to live on, about ten thousand pounds a year. He managed to get on with it by running into debt. In magnificence, extravagance, and novelty he was without a rival. Directly he was copied he changed his fashion. On horseback he wore loose boots of cowhide, which turned over, with spurs. He had hats like nobody else's, unheard-of lace, and bands of which he alone had the pattern. End of section 36 Recording by John Trebithick